All right. I think we're live, Dr. McKee. Um, hi, everybody. Welcome uh, to the, the next webinar from Treasurit. Uh, renew your commitment to zero trust privacy. I'm beyond honored to have the opportunity to welcome Dr. McGee. Um, just as way of introductions, uh, I, my name is Aaron Stillman. I'm the head of product marketing at Treasurit. Uh, we cover uh, the scope around sales enablement, content marketing, product marketing. Uh, I've been with the company about six months and I've been in uh, B2B SaaS for uh, over 15 years and am now very happily living in Europe. Um, and with that, I'll hand things over to Dr. McGee. Thank you, Aaron. And, and thank you to the, to, the, to the treasurer team for the opportunity to, to be here today. So my name's Dr. Lisa McKee. I, um, I have a PhD in data privacy and cybersecurity. So this topic is near and dear to me. I've got 20 years of experience um, in technology and uh, industry. And I also am a professor at the university. So I'm the founding, a founding partner at American Security and Privacy, where we offer services, product training and awareness in cybersecurity and privacy solutions. So I'm certainly happy to be here and, and excited to talk about this today. A few quick notes uh, for everyone to know, we will be recording this, we will be sharing it afterwards. Anyone who has any questions, please don't hesitate to put them into the chat and we will uh, answer those questions as many as we can in the time we have. For any of the questions that get asked that we don't have a chance to answer, we will be following up not only with the recording, but also uh, the answers to all the questions. Uh, so with that being said, uh, I think we can go ahead and, and dive in. Uh, we've you know got a chance to meet uh, Dr. McGee and I. Uh, so we're gonna dive into the topics. And uh, I, I think the first question to sort of set the foundation with you, Dr. McGee, is uh, some fundamentals around zero trust privacy. So just give us a very brief overview of what it means in the context of data privacy, cybersecurity, and the fact that we're all living in this digital world across organizations, internally, externally, um, help us set the stage here. Yes, um, so actually zero trust privacy is a term that I created. I kept hearing a lot about zero trust. And here in the United States, we've had new laws and regulations that have come out. We've had executive orders that came out. There's things that have happened internationally and globally around zero trust. And what I found as a security person and privacy doing zero trust is that everyone seemed to be talking and focused on the identity and architecture. And so as a privacy person, I took a step back and I said, those are great and those are important, but I don't believe that they're the foundation of a solid zero trust deployment. So I came up with the term zero trust privacy. What it does is it shifts the focus of zero trust strategies where data is the foundation. And if data is the foundation of your zero trust deployment, now the rest of the pieces, including identity and access management and architecture will fall into place because I can make sure that I'm architecting and, and setting up access based on those privacy and regulatory obligations. And, and I think the way you said it makes so much sense because it immediately makes me think about sort of 
you know, you're starting at the bottom and you're building up and that's just so logical. Um, so one of the first, uh, you know, questions I had for you that when, when we were preparing for this is, you know, is it a privacy topic? Is it a security topic? You know, so who's involved, right? So for everyone listening, like which departments are involved that need to be at the table? Um, give, give us some thoughts there. Yeah, that, um, so security, privacy, legal, I'm of the mindset that there's no one person that solves these problems. So another term that I came up with was CompreSec, which is a convergence of compliance, privacy, and security. Because as we're architecting or discussing solutions, be it security, privacy, technology, it doesn't matter. We need to make sure that all of those key stakeholders are involved in those conversations. So security is going to make sure that the solutions are secure, right? We're meeting security, uh, best practices, industry standards, things like that. Privacy is going to come in and specifically say, you know, yeah, that might be secure, but it doesn't meet my privacy obligations. So let's talk about that. And what do we need to do a little differently? Whereas compliance has a bigger purview. They're looking at all the things, security, privacy, local regulations, international regulations. So they have a little bit bigger scope as to what they're looking at. So it's no one particular role that should have the, the responsibility to solve this. It really needs to be cross-collaborative and a conversation that involves many people across the organization. Yep. Uh, I, I don't know many topics that are not really cross-functional, so that makes sense. Um, now, at, at Treasury, uh, we take sort of privacy very seriously. Uh, especially in the communication with our customers. Um, one of the reasons is because of the importance related to compliance and the fact that, you know, our target market and the ones who trust us uh, have a lot of regulatory compliance needs. So in that context of zero trust privacy, uh, how does it align with the different various cybersecurity and data privacy regulations? What are steps that an organization can take to ensure the compliance while implementing the model? <laughs> yes, that's a great question. And I love that question because one of the benefits of zero trust privacy is that it really sets up an organization for success. So if the foundation is, uh, is data, right? Knowing what data you have, knowing where that data is going across your organization, knowing where it can go, because those are two different things. I may be sending data somewhere that legally I don't have a, 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 a the, you know, I shouldn't be doing, but we know companies are doing that anyways. So it helps with that conversation. Once I know the data layer, that foundation, the rest of the obligations and requirements become much easier. I can do a records of processing activity, which is a very specific privacy requirement, because guess what? I know what data I have. I can document right processing activities, and it makes that ROPA activity a lot easier to complete. Um, another one is privacy notices. That's required in every law, even not privacy laws. There's others that require require those notices and disclosures. If I know for sure what data I have, 
and where that data is going and where it's being shared, now I can ensure that those privacy notices and disclosures are complete and correct and accurate, as opposed to, well, I think this is what we're doing, or I'm 90% sure, and then it's just kind of a, you know, I think this is a best guess. You're, you know for certain um, with that. The other oh, oh. thing... Yeah, go oh, ahead. I was just gonna say, even even you know the amount of time it takes, right? We were talking about that. Like uh, maybe it's a three week process just to figure yeah. it out. Um, please keep continue. Yeah, no, so it helps with a lot of those um, privacy obligations. Then when we start to look at the security components of it, you know, the zero trust architecture, the identity and access management. The other thing that I like to talk about is understand your organizational compliance footprint. Um, it, another thing that I do research in, and it's a list of all the laws, obligations, requirements that have to, um, that the organization has to comply with. With that, you will have your privacy laws and regulations listed, and then you can start to know where can I legally send data? Do I have the controls in place for cross-border data transfers. So Aaron, you're in the EU, I'm located in the United States. There's laws and stringent requirements about us sharing information and what that information can be, how it can be protected, but people don't always know that. And they're just like, oh, well, I've got an office somewhere else, so I, I can send that data there, which you and I know that's not entirely the case. So now I know the data, I know where the data should go. So therefore I can architect those solutions to limit the flow and transmission of data where needed. I can restrict access based on locations, data sets where needed. And so now taking that bottom up approach, if I know that data layer, it just makes everything else easier. And then it's less rework. I don't have to have the conversations all over again. I don't have to re-architect my system because I didn't know and didn't ask the right questions up front. Yeah, so much of that resonates. And as you know, we talk with prospects uh, and customers with Treasurate, uh, especially with prospects in those early conversations, um, I think you said it really well where we hear this theme, uh, well, my company's located here. And it's like, okay, but you have offices globally, right? Or, you know, your customers or partners that you're engaging with are, are distributed, even if it's just in the United States from a state to state perspective, country to country. Um, and, and so then we get into some of these like differentiating conversations around data residency options in different places and, and how all that comes together. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the technology. Um, I, I, you know, we know that encryption is not encryption is not encryption. And there's a big difference between end-to-end -end encryption and encryption. But, you know, if we think about the zero trust model, the zero trust architecture, and all the things that you've sort of been describing, what are some of the technologies that are involved? How do they work together to enhance both the privacy and security and what role do you see encryption playing in, in all of this? So encryption is important both for security and privacy requirements. That was one of the questions you asked is, what are some of those differences? And private, uh, encryption is one of those that actually helps solve a lot of obligations, both on the security and the privacy side. Um, 
Encryption in the privacy space, what we call our privacy enhancing technologies, which are technologies that help with the security and privacy of data systems and applications. And privacy engineers are well equipped to help identify what those solutions look like. But what people don't always realize is that encryption is one of those technologies. Um, they often think it's a it's just a security thing when it's really not. It bridges both. Um, there's some other things in in the privacy and security space where we talk about software development. So the end to end process of software development, privacy end to end with privacy by design, similarly to what we are doing with security end to end in software development and taking that one step further. And one of the things that it's always my goal with industry and with professionals is that as much as we say security, 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 I would love to see the industry and professionals get to where we're saying security and privacy because privacy needs security to function like it can't stand alone. Uh, security can. And so often people think about the security pieces without going a little bit deeper to think about the privacy obligations. So they really do go hand in hand and encryption is one of those examples. Yeah, that that, that really resonates. And again, being new to the industry, I, I joined Treasure six months ago, it has been an explosion of information. And, and it made me sort of reflect and realize that before gaining this knowledge, I also just sort of correlated and threw everything into the same bucket. You know, if I talked about security, I, I was actually thinking about privacy and, and sometimes vice versa. Um, so I couldn't agree more. I, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, also learning about the difference between zero trust and zero knowledge. Like those are two terms that mean different things. Um, so let's now sort of transition a little bit into collaboration and information sharing, because at the end of the day, uh, on the one hand, companies need to be secure, they need to be private, and on the other hand, they need to run their business, um, and that involves collaborating externally, internally. So how are, in, in the zero trust model, how are organizations ensuring the secure collaboration and information sharing, not just amongst colleagues, not just externally, you know, in the same state, but another state, another country across borders, you know, talk a little bit about how, how you find that balance and how you can ensure, um, and, and you don't have to just talk about treasure it. That's okay. <laughs> no, that's a great question. Um, we know businesses are there to make money, right? Security is not necessarily a moneymaker. We know that it's not, uh, it's not a, a, a money-making function in the organization. It's more on the side of cost savings from, you know, if you're doing the right thing, then hopefully you don't have breaches and then therefore you're not incurring fines. And then therefore, you know, you're, in, you're, you're maintaining and instilling that confidence trust within your customers. So it's a different mindset. It's a different shift. And privacy is very much the same thing. Um, I actually have been pushing privacy more to meet security requirements, because what often happens is you'll make a recommendation, you know, security best practice, you mentioned encryption. Encryption, I feel like is one of those that changes so frequently because 
um, protocols are being deprecated, algorithms are being deprecated. So then there's new guidance on what's the next best thing to use and how should that work and be configured and all the things that go around encryption. Um, and so with that, what that does then is on the privacy side, now we have to have a conversation because what data am I going to share? How am I going to encrypt that data? But then what are the other requirements around that? And what happens if I don't do that? The ramifications of not implementing a control. And so it really takes all teams, all hands on deck. And I also like to talk about this bottom up top-down, meet-in-the-middle approach, because your frontline workers, your, your um, first line of defense, they're going to be the ones that are going to know when things aren't working. They're going to be the ones that right away are going to raise their hand and say, you know, manager, this is what we're doing, but these are the complaints that I'm getting from the front lines. This is what's not working. And they're going to communicate that up to middle management. Then it really needs to be a top down, right? A culture shift where you have that support and that buy-in from your executives that are feeding that down to your, you know, VPs and directors and meeting in the middle with the middle managers to say, what's that solution look like across the organization? How do we meet in the middle to make sure that we are servicing the customer, we are meeting our regulatory obligations, but then we're also increasing and growing and building revenue. Um, we know that with the privacy side, when we look at revenue, the biggest things to me that come into play are like marketing. Everybody wants to share marketing data. Everybody thinks they have a right to that information. And some laws, that's okay. And some laws, it's not. So that's where it's important that you have all those players at the table because marketing and, and, and HR um, and other support functions, finance, accounting, they're not security and privacy professionals. So we have to help educate them on what they can and cannot do, which is, again, why it's a collaborative effort and cross-functional. Yep. You know, I, I one of the reasons that we do these webinars and then we invite people as smart as you to help talk about these topics is because we really see in the market that so many companies, they, it's a risk mitigation. That's what we were talking about, right? And it's not an ROI, like, you know, uh, uh, this is going to help me grow my business. But if we can shift the mentality and the culture away from, well, I'm just going to work on growing my business and hope I don't get hacked. And then when I get hacked, I will do something about it, which often is too late because your brand's been impacted. You got fines, everything's sort of crumbling, right? So how, you know, this is about sort of educating and understanding it's an investment to mitigate risk for your future success. And like, that's, you know, one of the big takeaways. Um, so and that shift, Aaron, that you're talking about is actually really important because it's shifting from the reactive that industry has been for 20 years, right? It's always been reactive. I'm going to do the bare minimum. I'm going to meet compliance obligations and that's it. Yep. So what if, if industry best practice is more, this is all I'm going to do. And then when things happen to your point, it's reactive. It's shifting that mindset to how do I become more proactive? And in being proactive, then I'm winning 
customers I'm implementing and instilling trust and then growing my business, but from a different perspective. And so that's where I think some of that shift is happening. Some get it. Some are still a little slow to get there. But yeah, that's what I think of when you say that. 100%. And and it's especially interesting within this industry, right? Like if you're you're offering cybersecurity, but you're not implementing, you know, the technologies and walking the walk while talking the talk, it's, uh, you know, even more sort of challenging, I would say. Um, But if we keep sort of moving along here, um, let's talk about the implementation challenges. Uh, We're really flowing through this the right way. Uh, so let's talk through what are the common challenges organizations face when transitioning. And I think I, you know, we were very conscious about that word, right? Cause if, if you're a founder and you're starting a company in, you know, February, 2024, you have an opportunity to start from the ground up, but let's talk about all the companies that exist, right. Who are now saying, okay, I got to I got to keep growing, keep the train on the train tracks, but I want to transition and and do the right thing. You know, talk a little bit about that. Like what are the challenges and then of course we'll we'll talk through how to overcome those challenges. <laughs> yep. So some of the challenges that I have seen with organizations is they don't understand their compliance obligations. So they're they're implementing solutions that aren't compliant. So that's gonna get you in trouble um, when we talk about the reactive and proactive, right? So so that's the first thing, that's a, that's a big challenge. The other thing, another challenge that I see is, is companies think it's a technology problem, right? We talked about that at the beginning, right? Who should be involved in these conversations? And often when you think about zero trust, it's architecture, it's identity and access management. So therefore instantly people think it's technology. Um, They don't think about all the other key players that should be involved in those conversations. And technology folks, they're smart, they're brilliant, but they're not privacy professionals. Unless they're a privacy engineer that plays, you know, in both spaces with security and privacy and technology, most are not, then you're really doing a disservice to the organization because you don't have all the key pieces of information. So that's an implementation challenge that I often see where people think that the solution is siloed to a function or role, and it's really not. Um, Another uh, uh, implementation challenge is the architecture. Because industries and organizations are focused on architecture, they're deploying things and implementing things without even having business requirements or knowing what it needs to be, you know, what that solution needs to look like. I was working with a, a, a company a couple of years ago and they came to me with that very challenge and they're like, oh, well, you know, we're global. We're trying to do some things. Here's some different um, architecture deployment models. You know, what do you recommend? And one of the first questions I asked was, well, what are your business requirements? Because in this situation, this would be a better solution. But in this situation, this would be a better solution. But you don't know either way until you know what the business obligations are. So what's the strategy? What's the goals and objectives of the organization? And is business involved in those conversations? And again, 
often they don't they don't have a seat at the table in those conversations. So that's another big implementation challenge that I that I've run into where people are architecting solutions without even fully understanding the requirements. Yep. Uh, it goes back to what you were mentioning around the culture shift and, you know, it's not just technology, it's people process and technology. Uh, and that applies here. And the other big thing I'm hearing, um, and maybe it's because of my, you know, B2B SaaS sort of experiences, it very much sounds like a massive tech debt project. Like it could almost be looked at as, you know, we established this company 10 years ago, we built this architecture, we're growing, and now we want to make this shift. And it's like, oh, we've got this, you know, huge thing that we need to address. Um, but I think to your point, it starts with the business requirements to even know how to take that next step. So let's talk through uh, a little bit. Let's imagine, you know, those challenges exist as you described, um, and you're effectively managing those challenges. Uh, what are some of the things you would be doing uh, to overcome it, you know, effectively? Yep. So definitely, I always, always start at what are the obligations contractually, legally, um, whether that's at the federal or state or local or international global laws, um, because as soon as I know my obligations, then I can start to solutionize. I can recommend what those solutions look like. The other thing, too, is I'm not a lawyer. I know a lot about laws and regulations. My roles require that of me, but full disclosure, I am not a lawyer. So it's also really important to include legal in some of those conversations, which, you know, people cringe because the legal has an entirely different perspective, but they're also going to be the ones, you know, compliance, security, and privacy are gonna say, hey, based on this law, you know, it's our interpretation that we should be doing X, Y, or Z, or that this law applies because this is what we're doing and this is the scope of this law and regulation. But again, it's not legal opinion, right? It's just based on, you know, reading the law, understanding what the business does, and then you're making that recommendation. Legal really is the one that's going to say yes or no explicitly, something applies or doesn't apply. And that's really important to know because if you're a security privacy compliance person that's saying we have to do something and legal comes in and says, no, that's not true, it doesn't apply, your credibility goes out the window and then people are not gonna trust you when you're trying to recommend change and solutions and things like that. So it's really important to have that input from legal as well. Um, some of the other ways to overcome that is um, making sure that you have current inventories, current architect diagrams, right? We think that- <laughs> Documentation, yeah, back to right, that topic. <laughs> it, it is, it's cyber 101, it's tech 101. We've been doing it for years and years and years, but I love asking the question, how many, uh, you know, when I give presentations, how many have an accurate inventory and you see a few people raise their hand? Because yeah. even though it's something we should have been doing and have been doing for a long time, companies still struggle with that because, as you said, right, the size, the complexity, the, the geography and the diversity of the organization makes that harder to do. So if you don't have accurate inventories, if you don't have accurate network diagrams, then how can you start to figure out what that change is that needs to happen 
if you don't even know what today is? I, I can't tell you how many times I've been in a scenario where someone is, you know, let's say leaving the company and like all the knowledge is in that person's head. And it's like, oh, my God, you know, how does the code work? Or, you know, let's it's it's like a scramble. Right. Um, so, OK. We got through the challenges, we got through how we're going to address those challenges. Now, let's imagine we've implemented, we've got it, it's good. Let's talk about monitoring and analytics. What would you describe as a couple of KPIs that someone could put in place in order to monitor you know, the, the investment that was made and the fact that things are going well? That's a great question because on the privacy side, there are not many resources for standard KPIs, KRIs specific to privacy. There's a lot of resources for, for security, but not so much on the privacy side yet because people are still trying to figure it out. The very first benchmark um, that I always recommend is with the, the volume of data subject requests and your average response time. Yeah. Because if it's taking me 45 days and 45 days is the limit within the United States, it's 30 in the EU, it's actually 15 days in Brazil, which again, that's why it's important to know what those regulatory obligations are because that response time varies. But if it's taking me that full window, 30 days, 45 days, just to find all of the data across the organization that re, you know that correlates back to the data subject or that individual that made the request, that's a problem, right? That tells me that you don't know what data you have, where that data is, or even how to extract that data into a meaningful way for that individual that's making that request. So if you look at the volume of responses, um, the turnaround time, and then over time, that number should come down as you know where your data is, as you've architected systems to restrict flow of data, to restrict sharing. Now those response times, that's a that's a that's one of the most important KPIs and KRIs that I think of on the data privacy side. Yep, that, that makes total sense. And I remembered it. Uh, I think I referenced it uh earlier. Um, but that that's just so easy to measure too. Like, you know, you want some smart goals and you want a KPI like that, that to me is, is super clear and easy. Um, you know, I'm being conscious of the time. So I'm going to throw one more question at you and then we'll open it up to the audience. Uh, we know things are evolving so rapidly. Um, whether we're talking about consumer habits or technology or the environment, like everything is just rapidly changing. So Talk a little through about how you would encourage everybody to uh, adapt to evolving threats, whether it's generative AI, malware, phishing techniques, uh, whatever it is, like, you, you, you know, what can we do to sort of keep our ear to the ground and stay ahead of the game? Yeah, that's a great question. So the first thing is don't be blind to it. I often hear people that are like, oh, our employees aren't doing that. We don't have to worry about chat GPT. Nobody's doing that. I can promise you somebody in the company is doing it, whether you know it or approve of it or not, it's happening. So one, be open and be receptive to that. Um, at least acknowledge it. You can't 
um, you can't fix what you're not willing to acknowledge. The second part of that is policies and procedures. If the organization's perspective is not to use those technologies because they're too new, they're not well-defined, the security and privacy is still not well understood, so what's the impact of the company? Those are all great arguments to make when saying this technology is not allowed to be used for work purposes. But it comes back to what we've been, what we've been discussing in that you need to tell people this is not, we're not okay with this. Don't do it. This is our policy, you know, so therefore there's no procedures because you just shouldn't do it, period. Or secondarily, if it is allowed, put constraints around that. We saw earlier when ChatGPT came out, it's a great tool. A lot of people use it. It's easier, you know, on some business processes, it cuts down time and writing policies and some things like that. I, I hear a lot of people say, um, but we've also seen people put code in that. And now your code for your company is out freely available to the rest of the world. And you and I both know, Aaron, you put something on the internet, you can't just take it back. You know, it's out there forever. So, you know, now it can be detrimental to the organization. So that's the biggest thing is embrace it where it makes sense put policies and procedures in place to inform and educate the users on what those expectations are. Um, and that's and that's the biggest thing. The other thing too is understanding the implications on security and privacy. So when you start talking about generative AI, we've got machine learning, we've got robotics and process automation. There's specific clauses and privacy laws that say you can't use real data to train those models, um, that you have to make sure you're not introducing bias into some of those automated processes that, again, most are not lawyers. They don't know that. They haven't read those laws. So that's why it is a conversation and policy and procedure to get in front of what should be done and and, and what's allowed. That makes that that makes sense. Um... I feel like every time I talk to you, I have, I'm like learning more, uh, even though we've sort of been practicing these same, you know, questions. Uh, but I think we're at a good place now. And we've got two questions. Um, we actually have three. One of them I answered privately and I shared my email address with someone who's interested in talking uh, to someone at Treasure It. So um, hopefully you got my reply there. Uh, one of the questions I think is great for you, Dr. McGee, and the other one I think would be great for me. Um, so the one that will be for you is, in addition to data residency and compliance laws, what other characteristics do you recommend small, medium businesses use to help us better categorize our data so we can more easily pursue the right security and privacy controls for our organization? I love that question because here at American Security and Privacy, that's what we've been focused on is the data layer. Security stops at asset inventories, the physical, you know, architecture, servers, workstations, firewalls, things like that. What we look at then is we take that several steps deeper. So, it, and I think it's a great response to this question in that inventory doesn't just stop at the asset. Now it's what services make uh, uh, help support that asset. What applications are within that asset? Um, what 
processes are then done within the application within that asset. And then taking that even deeper, we look at what categories of data and what data elements are also then involved. So when we look at small and medium-sized businesses where it's asset inventory and we're going another four or five layers deeper, down to the data element layer. And that will help with the business categorization. If you know the categories of data and specifically what data elements are within each of those categories, now you can better respond to and make sure that your privacy notices are complete and correct. That information is also required for your records of processing activities. Um, so that's um, th those are some of the responses and some of the things that will help those small and medium-sized businesses. Yep, I think that makes sense. Uh, the next question is clearly from someone uh, who is a customer of Treasurit and uh, has a question that I think would make uh, more sense for me to answer. And so the question is, uh, you've said much about compliance, but when will it be possible to collaborate in the same document with Treasurit without issues with duplicating copies of the same document? Now, one of the things I would say is uh, being new to Treasurit, that was also one of the things in the very beginning that I picked up on as I was using Treasurit for my own day-to-day -day activities as all the employees do. And part of what you quickly learn, as I'm sure this customer did uh, at some point, is when it's about zero knowledge, zero trust, end-to-end -end encryption, there are some feature functionality that are harder to offer to the market. Um, and so it, it's often this conversation about, you know, competitors in the market who may offer some great functionality, but not the same level of security and compliance. That being said, um, we'll see what my chief product officer says after I tell him I did this, but I'm gonna give a little sneak peek into the product roadmap because it's very exciting to be able to finally announce that we are addressing this topic in 2024, uh, sometime in the June timeframe, we are looking to bring live editing to the market, which would directly address this topic. Um, so I hope you stay tuned uh, and, and we'll be talking more about that uh, and moving in that direction. We've got another question here from Paul. Uh, I see Harry's raised his hand. Um, maybe Harry, you can type your question. We'll see if we have the time. Uh, but what Paul asked is, given cloud data storage, how does a company go about ensuring that its data stays within geographical, example, national borders, and does it always matter if the data is properly encrypted, and proper encryption probably also needs to be defined? Thanks. I think maybe I can give a, a quick one and then and then you also uh, layer on top of that. What I would uh, say is, at least from the Treasurer perspective, we offer 12 different like data residency options. And we also offer it at the user level. And we do that because sometimes some employees have customers in Germany and other employees are working with customers in, in another place. And so they can have their folders with their data respecting the customer they're working with or partner. Um, so within Treasury, you have the opportunity to, to select that. And then that's our promise to you that your data is now residing in what you selected. Um, what would you what would you add or layer on maybe outside of that context? 
Yeah, so looking at it from a um, services perspective, right? Usually if something's in the cloud, most often there's some sort of service. So whether that's AWS, Azure, others, right? You talked about Trezor. The biggest thing with that is not always do people realize that you can go to that service provider and say, I need this data restricted to this location or I need you know, a location in the Asia Pacific and a separate one in Europe and a separate one in Canada and a separate one in the US. And you have that right. And I would even say responsibility to your customers to make sure that that's happening at the contractual uh, level. And that's why it's important to include legal and compliance and all the teams because they'll help define what those statutes of limitations are as to where that data can be transferred, shared, stored. The other thing that can also then happen is within the tools, within the data sets, um, there's also sometimes the ability to restrict access based on location. So if you have an individual that say is in the Asia Pacific region, the data is in the EU, then you can restrict that data, um, that data access based on their physical location and the location of the data. So there's technical controls that can happen. There's logical controls that can be implemented as well as solutions um, with the service provider specifically. And when we talk about the encryption part of this, um, does it always matter if it's properly encrypted and what's proper encryption? Uh, I would say best practice is yes, always encrypt that data. Always encrypt that data. Um, because whether the data is at rest or data is in use, um, you want to make sure that it's protected. Um, Aaron, did you have a comment about that? What are your thoughts? Well, I, I, I cannot help myself, but to see if we would want to add a, a layer or a specificity that don't just encrypt your data, end-to-end -end encryption is the level of encryption that I think is is uh, leading. There's plenty of companies that offer encryption that are getting hacked on a regular basis. Um, and, and that was sort of my point earlier about encryption's not encryption. I don't know, Dr. McGee, you can push back and disagree. Um, no, I think that's fair. And where I was going to go with that is that there's different layer, layers of encryption, right? So you're exactly. talking and, and I often talk of it in terms of data in use, data in motion, data in transit, data in storage, right? There's different levels. So yes, it goes back to your point of you want to encrypt that data in all forms, in all places, in all uses, point to point, end to end, in use and things like that. So there's a lot of different ways to tackle it. But Aaron, I feel like you and I are saying the same thing. And then yep. encrypt, 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 like that's a, that's a requirement. All right. I, you know, I what's wonderful is the questions continue to flow in. Some of them are related to just uh, wanting to talk more with you, Dr. McGee. Uh, and we'll make sure that um, all the answers are shared. All the questions that we didn't get a chance to answer are answered. Uh, we'll make sure any of the folks who uh, expressed interest in talking with Dr. McGee, uh, she is well aware and, and knows of, of that. And I just want to thank everyone for carving out the time to spend with us. And, and I especially wanted to thank you, Dr. McGee, um, for, for dropping some knowledge. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for the opportunity to, to have the conversation. I think it's really important. So thank you. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.